I have a lot of feelings about this goddamn show. Oh, yeah, I have a lot of feelings too, Brandon. I will just tell you that I really wish there was a special store you could take back your ungrateful family members and get a refund on. Because I will tell you what, members of the family in this show, I wanted to reach through my damn TV. Welcome to the Skipping Fanti Show Screen Scouts. Remember, the devil come knocking, you better answer, or he'll burn your house down. That is true, actually. I've read the Bible. Yeah, it is. It's in there. I'm Sean. I'm Brandon. And on today's show, we'll discuss The Last Days of Ptolemy Gray, a six-episode miniseries from Apple TV+, Plus, based on the book of the same name by one and only Walter Mosley. It stars Samuel L. Jackson, Dominique Fishback, Cynthia K. McWilliams, Damon Gupton, Marsha, Stephanie Blake, and Walton Goggins. Directors include Ramin Barani, Debbie Allen, Hanel M. Culpepper, and Guillermo Navarro. There are also a lot of producers, and I'm just not going to name them all because I've already said a lot of names, so Google it. There's a long list of people that are involved in this. But before we get into the discussion of The Last Days of Ptolemy Gray, we'd like to remind you all that we still want to hear from you. So please share your comments with us about this and past episodes at skiffyandtranty.com slash listener suggestions. We're still hoping to put together a listener mailbag episode at some point, so we'd like to hear your thoughts, questions, topic suggestions, and more whenever you want to share those with us. So please, yeah, do the thing. Do it or I'll cry. Oh God. Yeah. So... This is a show that you suggested we watch, Brandon, mm-hmm. and it is a very interesting show, given that it is an episode we have released on our Patreon for the Speculative Dispatch on adaptations. This happens to be an adaptation. We just happen to have not read the book, at least in my case. I assume, Brandon, you also have not read the book. I unfortunately have not. It is on the list of things that I want to read because Walter Mosley is dope. He is very I, I won't say that word, but uh, very cool. <laughs> I feel like I can't say the word dope without it sounding a tad cringy. So, Oh, Lord. <laughs> but with that in mind, I think it would be helpful to give the basic rundown of what the show is about. It is, I will just note, to get my general reaction out of the way, probably one of the best of the streaming platform television productions I have seen in the last decade. The acting here is so good that if Samuel L. Jackson and Dominic Fishback do not get award nominations in the relevant award categories, I will lose my damn mind. Because Sam Jackson in particular and Dominic Fishback, who is quite good here as well, Sam Jackson is utterly like captivating. Indeed. This is, I would argue, possibly the best performance of his entire career. And that's saying something because the dude has been in this industry longer than I've been alive. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's this show about, Brandon? So, The Last Days of Ptolemy Gray is about a guy named Ptolemy Gray. Yeah. An elderly black man who is, unfortunately, suffering from dementia and presently in the care of his grandnephew, struggling to cope with failing memory, having particularly intense flashbacks of portions of his youth that he cannot put into context when he 
learns rather unfortunately in like a very emotionally hostile circumstance to me after being invited by other members of his extended family to learn that he has been invited to the funeral of his grandnephew and now has no one to take care of him and is frustrated and angry and doesn't know where to put any of those feelings in part because of his dementia when a young girl named Robin, a friend of the family who has just been kicked out of another family member's home, comes to Ptolemy's apartment to take care of him and discovers that Ptolemy's grandnephew made an appointment to for Ptolemy to meet a doctor who promises that he's working on a treatment that can potentially cure dementia and other mental disabilities but that the treatment as it exists right now is not only incredibly painful, but is not complete, and therefore, at the end of that treatment, he will not only lose his memory, but will never have the potential to regain it. And Ptolemy vows at that point that the only things that matter to him are keeping a promise that he made to a personal friend in his youth, and solving the murder of his grandnephew, even if it means sacrificing his entire memory in the future to do it. Uh, so he decides to take the treatment with the sole purpose of discovering who killed the one family member that he was still close to. And in that process, develops this very strong bond with Robin that becomes another like powerful point of the end of the series. I have a lot of feelings about this goddamn show. Oh, yeah, I have a lot of feelings too, Brandon. I will just tell you uh, that I really wish there was a special store you could take back your ungrateful family members and get a refund on. Because I will tell you what, members of the family in this show, I wanted to reach through my damn TV. I, yeah, I was so, so, we should start with that then. Because like, yeah, family, like, the complexity of one's family relationships are, like, a very strong part of the show, very obviously. Ptolemy is very deeply family-oriented in a way that is very peculiar, in part because we eventually learn that some parts of his family are just, like, terrible. The two other family members that we meet the most are Nisi and Hilliard. Like, Hilliard is Nisi's son. Their Nisi is his granddaughter, I assume. I spent so much time hating her, I just kind of blanked out. <laughs> like, because <laughs> the very first time that we meet Hilliard, oh. he not only is, like, very bitter and cruel and nasty towards Ptolemy, but literally robs him. Like, benefits from his lack of memory to, like, take $100 out of this man's pocket. He takes 200 Right, yes. Tw- he, t- he takes two-thirds of Ptolemy's $300 weekly... Basically his pensions, his various pension things. And his excuse later really threw me. Both because it was quite honest, but also because at this point, when he's finally confronted by Ptolemy about it, and he admits to it, he seems guilty. But then his response is to say, well, I didn't think you were going to miss it because of the state you were in. And at this point, Ptolemy has taken the medication Mm -hmm. and he is, is lucid, essentially. Yeah. And Ptolemy's correct response is to say... Why would you think that that's right? Mm-hmm. That's more right to do that just because that person wouldn't know any better because of their mental state. And he his response is just, yeah, it seems perfectly fine because you wouldn't have missed it. It's like, no, you're not getting the lesson, kid. You're literally abusing, in this case, literally abusing an old man. 
and taking advantage of an old man instead of doing what is the moral duty of taking care of somebody who is fundamentally incapable of fully taking care of themselves. They require help from other people. And you have just admitted, just as long as they don't know any better, you would take from them. That is horrifying as a moral foundation. I mean, I will know at the end, I was really glad when they basically say straight up, like in that video that he makes to demonstrate that he is lucid at that hearing. Mm-hmm. And he just says that, oh, Hilliard will probably end up in prison. And I was like, <laughs> yeah, Hilliard is on his way there. He is a little shit stain. Hilliard is a piece of shit. Like we know that. But there's a part of me that still pities Hilliard, no matter how objectively nasty that he is. Because Nisi is a whole other kettle of fish. Because she is, at this point, yeah. the eldest remaining member of Ptolemy's family. And has not only never gone out of her way to, to particularly care about Ptolemy's well-being, but only becomes invested at this point by the idea that Robin, who is not a member of the family, may be taking advantage of Ptolemy. And that only matters because Ptolemy may have a lot of money. I found that show's exploration of family really interesting because there's like a... Nisi is an interesting character in this respect, I think, because she is, on the one hand, very, very much dedicated to the notion that everything about one's kin must be kept within, mm-hmm. within the family, right? Your kin and everything to do with your kin is to stay within kin. It is not meant to leave that foundation, even if you're doing objectively bad things and you are going to do bad things as a consequence. And so Robin is a threat because Robin is literally not kin, is outside, which is somewhat ironic because she is semi-partly raised by members of this family. And so Nisi views Robin as this threat, but wants to keep her both inside and outside at the same time. You are not kin, but I want to treat you as though you're a child that deserves some degree of parental care. Mm -hmm. And at the end, it felt like the lesson that Nisi was supposed to learn, she just couldn't learn it. She could not unlearn this notion that even if it's clearly and objectively, and she knows, you can tell on her face, right, in the hearing that they're having at the end about whether or not Ptolemy's estate should stay with Robin or whether or not it should revert to the family. You can tell she fucking knows that they are not suited yeah. to manage this wealth at all. But she cannot let go of the idea that it must be kept within the family, period. And that must be blood-related family. Cannot be any other no-found family, no alternate dimension family, none of that. But it's also objectively that she doesn't care. She does care. I don't think that she doesn't care. I think that her notion of what family means... It becomes like a desperate argument to do things that she knows are wrong, but she's using that as the excuse, but she knows it's wrong, and she does care yeah. to a degree, but she can't let go. Like, I'm not saying that that's not obviously a part of it, but like, what I mean is also okay. a major part of the case, the arbitration that takes place at the end of the series between Nisi's lawyers and the lawyer that Ptolemy prepares for Robin when this uh, takes place, is the fact that Robin managing the estate ensures that they will get money every month. That there will be more money than they would ever see in their lives. But objectively, a part of that complaint is also 
Nisi just wants all the money. It should never be... Not just that it should not be the business of someone who is not in the family, but that how dare Ptolemy, who was mentally struggling before we got to this point, be in a position to decide his own affairs for me with money that he can't spend now. Um, Like, there is a kind of objective selfishness there. Oh, they're selfish. They're completely selfish. When, like, it's still money. Just stop fucking complaining. And, uh, like... And it, it's what's particularly unique about that story, obviously, is the position that Robin is in. Because Robin hates being in this position. Like, Robin spends a great majority of the series not being fond of money. <laughs> well, she's seen what it does, right? It it corrupts people because of the, the way every single person in this family, except Ptolemy, treats money. Mm-hmm. Is... It's it's this thing that, that, like, turns people into monsters. Yeah. And, like, it's very interesting from her perspective as a result, because, one, she is our eyes and ears into the story, even though we meet her very late compared to other characters in the series. But the thing that is so interesting about Robin as a character, and the thing that Ptolemy sees in her and values as a result is, in part, because she is so dismissive or distrustful of money that is the reason why he trusts her the most to handle his affairs she's objectively honest like she's undeniably honest undeniably helpful goes out of her way to be as forthcoming and productive in Ptolemy's life even though they don't know each other very well and he doesn't even know at the point when she has arrived in his life why she is in his apartment in the first place and she still goes out of her way to clean his entire apartment for free by herself. And the thing that he sees in her as a result is, you are, like, the most ordered person in my life right now. He literally says in the last episode that, like, order just comes naturally to Robin. And that's the reason why he decides that she should be the one to manage his estate. But... It's also objectively the reason why she hates being in that position, because it means that she has to now navigate um, how dangerous money can be for people who have no reason to trust or like her, and are now using that specifically to try to get access to all of that money for themselves. And she would like very much to just give up and throw the entire thing away, but she knows that she's doing the right thing for Ptolemy. And, like, being in that position sucks! Oh, it's not fun, and she's losing people that she used to care about yeah you know i mean she'd already lost hilliard because he basically tries to rape her at one point which is again hilliard is a piece of shit oh he's an absolute monster but like the part that the part that hurts in that episode the most is nisi actually gives robin a hug outside of the courthouse and robin is crying and saying i don't want to hurt you i just want to do what ptolemy trusted me to do that at the moment she says that, that's when Nisi just kind of turns cold again and says, well, I, I gotta do what I need to do for me, and walks away. I'm like, so you didn't really care then? Uh, in that moment, that, that court scene at the end was sort of the last moment, because there's a glimpse on Nisi's face when you, you know she realizes that actually Robin is the one that should be doing this, and what we're doing to Robin is cruel. And horrible. Yeah. We're lying to, like, they know Robin is not, didn't just, like, manipulate Ptolemy and use her, like, you know, young feminine wiles to take his money. They fucking know that that's not what she did. 
And yet they're hearing the arguments being uttered by their lawyer. And on her face, Nisi's face, is the recognition that what we're doing is wrong. Mm-hmm. But they cannot let it go. They cannot just take the money. The, like, the estate clearly establishes you get money all the time. More money than you can possibly use. You're going to get it constantly, repeatedly. Robin can't violate that. The contract's written, but they don't care. It's like the principle of the whole thing. They cannot let go. And that's the moment of like, this was kind of the last straw for me is I think they could have been redeemed if they had said, okay, you know what? This isn't the result we wanted, but you know, we got it. I appreciate the olive branch. Let's just try to move on and like, blah, blah, blah. But the fact that she can't let it go was the moment where I was like, this family actually doesn't deserve the money. Yeah. They don't deserve anything that Ptolemy gave them. And Robin is still going to give them the money, even though they have smeared her reputation. They've basically called her a whore. Like, they have, to her face, in court, Mm -hmm. right, in an arbitration hearing, in legal proceedings, they have insulted her, they have insulted Ptolemy, they have lied and manipulated and cajoled. And even after all of that, Robin is trying to seek reconciliation. And they don't offer it. And that is, for me, the moment they're irredeemable. They are bad people and do not deserve the love that Ptolemy has provided them out of the kindness of his heart. He didn't have to give a fucking dime to them. He could have burned his money. He could have put it in that bank account or just handed her that briefcase of cash and all the coins and let her go. He could have thrown it into the river. He could have done any number of things. Set this up out of a love for his family because he actually does care about the idea of kin like that you take care of your family they don't they care to the extent that they want to take care of themselves and they have a notion about it but they don't really care about what it means to be part of a family that takes care of one another in a way that ptolemy absolutely knows i hate this family i absolutely hate this family they are pieces of shit (laughs) i'm sorry Maybe there's some things I'm missing here that like are a cultural thing because I'm not part of this subculture in the U.S., but they are just bad people to me. I can't trust them. What, what could you trust them with? You could trust them with nothing. Yeah, you're not wrong. Like Reggie, you could. Reggie is adorable. I oh, mean, they should not have killed off Reggie. They should have killed off Nisi. Like, let Nisi die. Oh, Lord. I don't really want anyone to die. Not really. I just mean like Reggie is this sweet guy who is... Honestly, exactly the kind of person that Ptolemy is in a way. He shows up and is helping Ptolemy, even though he knows Ptolemy is in, he's in the late stages of dementia. He's forgetting everything. He can't really take care. He's literally eating cans of beans. And that's how he counts the days. It's the number of cans he eats because he's just lost any full semblance. And Reggie's there all the time, coming all the time, setting up these doctor appointments. He's a good man. And this family is like, they don't seem to be capable of demonstrating that much love and care. Mm-hmm. And I mean, one of the things that I found particularly interesting, because at some point we have to get to the particularly interesting conversation of why are we talking about a show that isn't obviously SFF? Oh no, it is obvious. It's obvious. I mean, it's obvious to us, yes. But yeah, so up to this point, it, not, it isn't really, yeah. But one of, the, one of the things that got me starting to watch this show in general overall, before I even recommended it to you, was um, the fact that Samuel L. Jackson said several times in several interviews before even ads for the show came out that this was a passion project for him, in part because he just wanted to tell a story about dementia and how 
that struggle is not only obviously internal for the person who is struggling with it, but obviously external for the ways in which it radically affects the family of someone suffering. And that that is not always necessarily (laughs) the story of well-natured family members coming to terms with how hard it is that somebody cannot remember them, but how it means also dealing with terrible family members not giving a damn about you and knowing that unless someone else makes them care, no one will ever make them care. Yeah. And, I mean, that's a major draw of the show. It's very interesting that this show is simultaneously a mystery, very intricate kind of medical science fiction story, and a drama. Mm. Family drama. All at once. And all of those things matter very strongly to the point where the very last beats that we settle on in the entire show are the dramatic beats. Or the mysteries over the science fiction element has now faded. We just have to deal with the fact that having dementia sucks and sometimes your family will not care. One of the other cruel things that the family does at the end of this series is they insist that Robin shouldn't be able to visit Ptolemy in the hospital. Yeah. Even though she's the only one that does. Yeah, none of them go. I I just... It is wild how just out of touch this family is, or perhaps they're precisely in touch where they need to be because of who they are as people. I will say that I'm watching this, I got a lot of anxiety as somebody who has had a family member who, while they didn't have dementia, were in their final their final throes of life, where they, they really couldn't take care of themselves anymore, and they required a lot of help. And to imagine that people would treat that person who needs us, who needs us to be the best that we can be as people... That there are people that would treat them poorly, would take advantage of them and abuse them, is just vile in in a way that is important to talk about. And I think this show does a really brilliant job of showing the complexities of how we deal with people who are suffering from debilitating illnesses that put them in a position where they require the help of others, and how people respond. And more importantly, to go back to the original thing we were talking about, the importance of where family is supposed to fit into that, and what happens when family doesn't, and who fills that gap. You know, Robin filling that gap here, in particular Reggie to a degree who's literally kin. All of that is is a really important commentary on the fact that our notions of family don't necessarily mean what the sort of myth of family used to mean, right? That family was there to take care of. Now, I mean, it's almost like a free-for-all in the way that this is described. And it's really quite sad and a bit depressing to think about that this is kind of where this particular group of people have fallen they have been so i don't know mentally driven in the wrong direction that they would abuse people for their own gain Mm -hmm. which is not unique to family in this right there's lots of elements of this series that are also about some of the abuses that occur wider in culture, right? The very first episodes set up a conflict that Ptolemy has with a woman that is in his neighborhood who claims that he owes her money and is willing to beat him up, you know, hit him and attack him. There are multiple times when people that he just meets on the street, men and women, he's trying to be a real nice man and they're just treating him with disrespect. Mm -hmm. Even though it's very clear that before he gets his treatment, he is 
He's a senile old man who is not quite all there. And people will treat him with a great degree of abuse. And I don't know if this is trying to say something about a certain state of America's view of the elderly, because to some degree, I think it is. It seems to suggest that this is a show that is based on, I assume the book does this as well, trying to show us kind of how far we can fall when we don't stop to think about how we treat people like the elderly, our elders, with respect. Because again, the the worst thing Ptolemy does here is maybe he hits on a woman. <laughs> I think that's kind of the worst thing he does up to, I suppose, he, he murders a man, although that man kind of deserved it. I mean, the guy that he murders deserves it. Well, yeah, because that guy killed his great-great-nephew, Reggie, and is beating up Reggie's wife and is going to probably abuse those kids. Mm-hmm. Like, this is... That that man is not a good man either. Yeah. Uh, and it's, again, he kind of sees him for the wolf that he is, come to suck the family dry, as it were, so he kills him. Mm-hmm. Deservedly so. So, like, I want to speak again to, like, the way that this show sets up, the way that we have conversations about and think about the elderly. Mm. Because, obviously, and speaking again to the anxiety that you felt... Oh, so much. I don't have experiences with a family member suffering from dementia, or at least not to that extent. But the first several episodes, I spent a lot of time being, like, viscerally upset. Like, I spent a lot of time, when the first two episodes came out, because the first two episodes came out the same day, I spent a lot of time actually crying in response simply to Samuel L. Jackson's portrayal of being in the body of someone with dementia. Because a lot of that is just, like, genuinely, viscerally upsetting. But, like, as the series goes on, one of the things that we discover, first and foremost about Ptolemy Gray, is that he had a very complex and very well-read life. And trauma. As an adult. Lots of trauma, yes, of course. Especially as a child. Experienced a great deal of trauma. Experienced a great deal of very intense loss. But he's also very well-read. He's also very cultured. Mm-hmm. He's also very thoughtful. Even in situations in his adulthood where he experienced other kinds of trauma, he was always ready to engage with those situations with a kind of thoughtfulness and compassion and understanding that nobody gets to know because without this treatment, he can't even remember those things to share it with them. Yeah. And one of the things that I found very interesting as a result is how people's perception of him change now that he has this treatment because he is now seen as a cultured elderly gentleman instead of an old man falling apart. Like, one of the things that struck me personally a great deal is after taking the treatment the way that he leaves the house changes yeah because it goes from robin asks a friend to come pick them up from the apartment all the way up to ptolemy rents a limo (laughs) just so he can go to a lake yeah well he gets other places too but yeah yeah Almost as if implier, implying a kind of stateliness that has come with his wisdom that is not the same kind of thing that we afford most elderly people. Yeah. And of course he only has that he only has that privilege because he has the money to spend on it and is willing to spend it. But also yeah. no one judges him for being old when he's in that Cadillac. No one judges him for being old 
when he's wearing the fanciest suit that he owns. Yeah, it's a commentary to some degree on on one's status. Yeah. You know, not only status in terms of age, right, that so long as he is spry, people treat him with mostly a, a degree of respect. Like, scumbags don't, but that's kind of true of everybody. Mm-hmm. But they treat him with a lot of respect. But when we see him without that, where he is not fully lucid, he's still kind and nice, and he sometimes, you know, he talks about, like, his name, the the root of his name and stuff. But people don't really pay him mind because they recognize that he's not fully there, but they treat him with a degree of disrespect. But even his financial status plays a role there as well, because when he appears to be a ratty old man, right, people think of him as kind of gross and so on. And to be fair, his his apartment's pretty gross. Mm -hmm. But once he gets all the fineries, right, suddenly he is talk of the town. Like there's a degree of air of respectability that's there that is super class oriented. So there's like that two elements that are sort of being presented to us that both class and age are status symbols and more particularly mental health in terms of age uh, would be status symbols. Mm-hmm. Or at least that's how I'm seeing it. I don't know about you, Brandon. No, you're you're right. And it, you, you reminded me of another thing that I thought was particularly interesting because there are kinds of markers of class and the distinctions between the way that we observe those things that is particularly interesting with Robin as well. Robin is homeless. The only character in the series who is not uh, an immediate family member of Ptolemy's. And all of the things that we know about her family life are, I don't want to say stereotypical markers of tragedy, but are experiences of being an African-American that are part of the struggle of how one survives in hostile space. And it's very easy as a result to read Robin as marked by that trauma and to be fair she is like she carries a knife with her like she sleeps with a knife on her person so no one can take advantage of her while she's asleep but it's also worth noting that one of the interesting things about the show in general is there are people who are thoughtful enough to know that you are not simply one kind of person or one kind of thing and those are always the kinds of people who do not expect anything from you so, like, the fact that uh, Shirley Ring, who meets Ptolemy at the bank and asks to borrow money, doesn't do it because she thinks that he has money, but because she needs the money, and is continually gracious towards him throughout, even when he doesn't ask for anything in return, as a result is, be- is able to see past even the return of his dementia. But in the same way, there is a boy that starts coming around and starts uh, hitting on Robin Mm. and notices how smart and thoughtful Robin is from like otherwise innocuous markers of her clothing that reveals that Robin is actually very smart, very thoughtful, not only marked by trauma. And that's an observation that they have, not because he thinks that that's the easiest way to woo Robin, but because he thinks that that's neat too. That actually digs the fact that he can talk about some of that weird stuff with somebody and that somebody will get it. Yeah. And especially in a black show, it's particularly unique. Not because I think that media doesn't show the uh, multifaceted nature of blackness, but because especially when trauma is part of the plot, it's very easy to assume, well, trauma is the reason why you're here. We don't need to think about anything else. And I thought that it was particularly thoughtful to let us know that all of these people have layers 
And those layers are specifically determined, like specifically observed by people whose goal it is to see you in a multifaceted way, to do it without any pretense. Because that's how we also learn who is trustworthy in this world where everybody is untrustworthy. Yeah. And I kind of really appreciated that in particular, that it was also the way that we learned whether somebody actually cared about someone. I think that's interesting. I will say that I got really concerned watching this, that this new boy that comes around, because of the way that Hilliard's presented to us as essentially being a rapist, is what the implication is, that he is willing to basically take advantage of presumably girls in his own age group, but who are sleeping and defenseless. He's willing to take advantage of them. And so when they introduce this new guy, I got immediately, like, defensive. (laughs) I was like, this guy's going to turn out bad, right? Like, she's going to have to stab him. That's what's going to happen here. I'm thankful that that's not what we get. What we get is actually a very sweet relationship where he is interested in her as a person. He wants to talk to her about, as you mentioned, right, things that he notices about her that he thinks are interesting. She's into astronomy. So is he. He wants to go to Mars. So does she. Like, there are all these little things that are there. But he's also, like, deeply respectful of her, you know, by supporting her in her bid to get a GED, which she does get. He he basically says, like, oh, that's not a surprise while celebrating, right? Because he has a lot of confidence in her. And he never really makes moves because he recognizes that she's, he can see that she's had trauma. Mm -hmm. But he doesn't ask her about it. She tells him some things that are kind of cryptic, but he just kind of accepts it and says, that's fine. So like the closest we really get to a lot of intimacy is like a peck on the cheek at one point and like some hand holding, which is really cute. But also it's like, but this is him sort of letting her dictate the pace of comfort for herself yeah, and not imposing anything else. And so it was really nice to see because I really just would like to have more of these in stories where we see relationships that are mutually respectful and honestly nice. I mean, I get they're teenagers, so like their chances of ending up together forever are pretty slim, but it just, but it happens, right? But the fact is he will be a good relationship with her, whatever that happens to them, because he will like, yeah, they may grow apart. They may not work out. They may actually work out. Who knows? Mm -hmm. But the fact of the matter is that the way he views her is not as a sex object, as a thing to be taken advantage of. She is a person that he cares about. And it's worth also noting, because you point out that they're teenagers, but they're not like 14, 15, 16. Right. They're like at the cusp of adulthood. Yeah. And one of the things that I appreciated as a result is we don't even see enough stories about adult romantic flourishing where that level of patience is actually a part of how it plays out. Like, the thing that I kind of appreciated about Roger the most in those scenes is he's willing to be honest about what he wants from a relationship and then never presses Robin about it the entire time. Like, at a point later on, he's like perfectly willing to admit, I think that you are the kind of person that I do want to spend the rest of my life with. If you do, and then just continues walking with her like it didn't come up. Where in another, she would be like, so I guess you need to give me an answer now. Um, Like, I appreciated that he was willing to be that patient, because that doesn't happen all the time. 
I mean, yeah, because you're right. In another story, there would be pressure there. Even what we would consider to be what is the more standard, normal kinds of pressure, which is you still shouldn't do. Yeah. Or even in another story, even if a male character in another story was still perfectly understanding of their partner not wanting to define the relationship one way or the other. In another movie or television series, that would be described as the relationship coming to an end. Yeah. Instead, Roger is still here. Well, he kind of says that he has this cute thing where he talks about like his dad and how he had to like ask his mom six times before she said yes. And it's kind of like this cute little story that he tells. But he tells her like, I'm not saying that's us. I'm pointing out that like, just because you're not ready now for a relationship, we clearly like each other. And I like spending time with you. And so if I get to spend more, this is like me reading lots of subtext here. But Mm -hmm. basically saying, like, if I get to spend more time with you and eventually, maybe after six times, you know, over a course of several months, you decide, you know what? I do want more out of this. Awesome. But if not, I am enjoying this this closeness and this honesty that I feel with you. And it's like saccharine sweet. And I don't give a shit because I really thought it was adorable and is contrasted in a very fun way to. The relationship Robin has with Ptolemy because they do actually have a, a kind of a conversation at one point where Robin basically says that she loves Ptolemy, but that she recognizes that the age barrier that they have and obviously his condition means that this cannot be romantic love. It has to be a very different kind of love mm-hmm. that if they were at a different generation, roughly in the same age group, this might have developed differently, but that it has to be this. It has to be this other thing. But that she has so much respect and love for him in the same way that he does for her. Roger is just Ptolemy in miniature because he's half the size of Samuel L. Jackson in this movie. Not because Samuel L. Jackson's big, but just because, like, Roger's a thin dude and he's, you, you know what I'm talking about. But he's cute, so whatever, who cares? I think there's just a lot really layered into the story overall, and you can just really dig into this, the firmament, on a lot of these moments. Where there's the story's not telling you what you're supposed to think. You're supposed to kind of figure out what's going on, what is happening underneath here, what is these moments of dialogue, what's really in the meaning underneath it. And it's it's really lovely to see because overall I just found this entire show in its treatment of relationships, even when it's dealing with problematic family, to the way that it deals with the science fiction concept we might want to talk about for a couple of minutes here, mm-hmm. to the way it deals with dementia, to friendship and family and love and all of these things. There's a deep honesty and an even deeper chasm of meaning that is buried there. And I just think that everyone should watch this show. Yeah. It's so good. Even before we get to the... as. Sean mentioned before we even mention any of the actual obvious sci-fi things about it, which is yeah. <laughs> the turning point, what is essentially called the action of the entire series, which is Ptolemy is given the opportunity to essentially take an experimental drug that will return his memories to him. Temporarily. Very temporarily. I mean, it's literally Flowers Falgenon. Yeah, but it's also presented to us as specifically, this is part of a trial. You are helping us by giving us data. There's literally like a whole thing where like he calls him Satan, but Satan, the guy, Dr. Rubin is like, yeah, but you, I want you to sign over your body because you are helping us develop the cure, essentially. But you are only going to get a matter of days or weeks or however long. And it's kind of 
like a moral dilemma. Yeah. Because you know your life ends. No, and there are things that I love so much about that framing. Because, again, it is, on the surface, Flowers for Algernon. If you've read that book, you know how this story goes. But having it framed through the lens of blackness, even when that element is not a thing that either the story or Ptolemy as a character overtly mentions as part of that observation, is in itself radical. Like, the thing that I adore the most is the fact that Ptolemy calls Dr. Rubin the devil. (laughs) Because he is aware that he is selling his soul. And what he means by that subtextually is, the United States medical practice has experimented on black people before, but now he is aware, like, the risk that he's taking when he makes this arrangement is, when his body is now given over to Dr. Rubin to discover how to make this medication better, he will still be alive and have no awareness of the continuing effects that this decision will have on his life. The very last state in which we see Ptolemy is, he is lying in a hospital bed in what is essentially the basement of the laboratory that Dr. Rubin has dedicated specifically for experimenting on this drug. And he can't even remember from one moment to the next who has come to visit him or whether that person is really there or not. And that is... that sucks! Um, because, like, the implication is obviously that he's not... he hasn't even simply returned to a state of dementia that he was previously... In, but that his his mind has deteriorated even further. But he made this decision of his own accord, knowing that that was the risk that he was taking. And part of the observation that we're making as a result is, like, what that cost means and why someone would take it. Like, another part of that conversation that obviously matters is, Robin spends a lot of the series very annoyed with Ptolemy that he decided to take the drug in the first place. And... He asks her why and says that she's worried that he hasn't thoroughly thought out the fact that the consequences of his decision is you could get worse or even die. And he says, do you remember the state that I was in when you met me? I didn't remember your name. I never changed my clothes. I lived in an apartment surrounded by my own piss. If you were in the position that I was in, wouldn't you have done the same thing simply so people wouldn't look at you the way that they look at me? And that's obviously not only a commentary on his age and his mental state, but obviously also a commentary on his race as well, and it never comes up. He never overtly says it, but obviously there is a level of that engagement that is different for him because he is black. Well, and we can't ignore the racial component, given that the flashbacks he receives, one of them is specifically to a lynching of essentially his father. Yeah. A fellow by the name of Koi Dog who teaches him to fish and all of these kinds of things. And that lynching involves literally hanging and burning Mm -hmm. of this man over a theft that they actually engage in, for the record. Whether or not those white people deserve to have that thing is a different question. I don't think so. Fuck them. Yeah. They're racist. But yeah, so like that's precisely his past. So race is clearly a part of this conversation, but it is in a way kind of like his flashbacks, a thing that is in the background underneath. The story is not overtly telling us that this is a story about race outside of its representational component, but it is very much pointing to this history that's part of the past. And Ptolemy even says at one point to Robin of something to the effect of all that stuff in your past 
that doesn't matter anymore. Like, that's just back there. That's that thing back there. It actually does matter to him, but he's trying to help her kind of deal with her trauma and kind of move forward with her life. But it is this great commentary, I think, that it's trying to tell us about how we deal with trauma, how we deal with the trials and tribulations of life. And to some degree, the story is trying to remind us that these are part of if I could be quite frank, these are part of an African-American man's history, a story that is familiar. This goes back in so many people's lives that all these things are there and are present, even if they're underneath the surface. Although I will just say Dr. Rubin seems like a nice fellow. So Yeah, I, that was another thing that I adored a lot, that Mr. Rubin takes being called the devil rather in stride. <laughs> <laughs> yes, he does. There comes a point where you just kind of you just kind of have to admit, I am actually affecting this black man's life for the worse. Maybe I deserve this, so I'm just gonna be a good sport about it. Yeah, I mean he kind of gets I don't know if it, if Faustian bargain is kind of what's being offered here, but it seems the appropriate metaphor. Yeah. But, I mean, he knows what he's offering, right? Every single one of the patients he's offering this to, he knows they are going to end up worse off. A lot of them are going to die. None of them are getting the cure. But people down the line might. And he's trying to think of the long game of, you're already in a miserable spot. And we're in a moral dilemma. We need patience in order to do these things. And if I can get it so that you can think about it and consent to the procedure, which is really, really fucking important here. I want to know. They give them a dose so that they become lucid. They they gain some of their memory and they're capable of having complex thought again. And it's solely to basically tell them, like, here is the truth of things so that they can make an informed consent, which I think when you brought up earlier, like the history in the U.S. of experimentation on black people, well, like most of that is without consent. And some of those studies, like the black people didn't even know there was a study going on. Mm-hmm. We only found out later that that's what's going on. And I think it's really important that Dr. Rubin, like our only white person, and I do appreciate at one point he goes to Reggie's re... Repast. Repast. Yeah. yeah. I do appreciate that he says, like, I don't think I've ever been to an event where I'm the only white person. <laughs> but, like, the, the the show seems to be aware of that history and is trying to point to the importance of consent really, really, really matters here. And that is great because I think you could have this story be something where that consent's not really granted for Ptolemy, but because it spends so much time making sure that consent is broached, addressed explicitly, and shown to us. And there's always informed consent as well. Informed consent. I want to be clear. It's informed consent. Yeah. I think it's really important. I also think that's important as a reminder of sort of medical ethics and why we need to be aware of medical ethics today and why they're important. There is a history here that is, especially in African-American history, problematic and full of horror. That history is a constant reminder of why we need to be vigilant about these things. Yeah. And I do want to say again, because it was another part of that relationship between Ptolemy and Dr. Rubin that I appreciated a lot. Like, I appreciated the fact that Ptolemy invites Dr. Rubin to the repast and then... Dr. Rubin comes to him afterwards and goes, I still don't know why you brought me here. And he essentially admits that I want you to be able to see the reason why I took the medication in the first place and the people who'd be affected by the decision that was made. Yeah. That he wants Dr. Rubin to know that the only reason why he is here in the first place is because he wants to be able to give back to this family. That if he didn't have his memory to do it, he wouldn't have been able to do so. And he wants him to be able to see those people and those lives that would be affected as a result. 
which is a thing that typically doesn't come up in these kinds of conversations, that yeah. someone's medical experience is also the experience of them being able to live in a circumstance. And if you aren't aware of that circumstance, if you aren't aware of the other lives that are going to be affected by that, you could make a decision thinking that it's the right thing to do and not know that you are just not only harming this person, but negatively affecting dozens of lives that you haven't even imagined, not only financially, but emotionally as well. It's an interesting thing that they do that, in part because sometimes when we talk about... Like, I was thinking House MD has a segment of it in which Foreman is in a Huntington's disease trial and obviously gets 13 involved and because he's dating her, it's like a whole, it's a whole mess. And that show is... The conflict there in dealing with that issue is about, well, medical ethics, if we're doing experimentation with drugs... We have to think of them as numbers. We can't think about them as people because we don't want to be compromised, our bias to be compromised, which is is an important thing because you want to make sure that the, the data is going to hold up to scrutiny, blah, 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 right? Obviously, Foreman violates that in the show by putting her on the correct drug, which turns out to cause cancer. So it's a whole it's a whole thing. And he has to admit it. And he basically gets banned from doing any clinical trials ever again. He gets a lot of slaps on the wrist. He's, he's in trouble. And... One of the things that I think this show does is try to sort of humanize medicine to a degree by having this very explicit moment of showing a doctor in the process of clinical trials on a drug, what are the consequences of what he's doing, that even these tiny components, this this short window in which you're giving someone back their memories and their life, you are having an immense impact. Ptolemy's not just a number. He's not just a brain that you're going to study. He is a person with family and connections, etc. And those connections, to a large degree, depend on his ability to communicate with them. And the disease he has, dementia, is preventing that. It's nice to see, because I think humanizing the medical field is a really important thing as a reminder that this is fundamentally a field about people. And it is not just about numbers. And not to be clear, I, I appreciate also medical ethics and rules about how you handle clinical studies, etc. I'm just saying people matter and recognizing the consequences of treatment, you know, like a new cancer treatment improves the chance that someone will live longer and thus will be able to spend more time with the people that they care about or their cat, which I'm sure the cat's also happy. So it's kind of beautiful. I think overall, like the something that comes across in a lot of the characters is there's just a lot of complexity to these characters. There's only really one villain. Mm-hmm. And that's the asshole boyfriend, who is just a bad man. I mean, to some degree, Hilliard is also basically is also a villain. But we don't know his story yet. We don't know where he ends up. He might end up like the fucked up boyfriend, though. That is distinctly possible. That's where he ends up if he doesn't get right. Yeah. And it's nice to see a show kind of deal with the complexities of human behavior that we're not as simple as black and white, that it's not as easy as they're just villains and so on, that there are people who make mistakes and there are people that are flawed. And even like his relationship with Sensia uh, is complicated and messy. I mean, Ptolemy says it himself in our conversation to Dr. Rubin as well, that Koi Dog once told him that sin is a road that runs from all the way to from the bottom of hell all the way to the top of heaven but no one is purely good or purely evil except for god and the devil and that's a good point it's 
remarkable that he has that kind of code. That even when he is acknowledging that people have hurt him, he is still willing to go all of the way to like be able to give them that kind of grace. And that the only person that doesn't get that grace as a result is the man who killed Reggie. Well, and he offers Reggie an out. Yeah, and he doesn't take it. And that's... He could have just left with the money. He literally was being offered... More money than he would ever see in his life. Like $80,000 a month for a year is what he's being offered. Yeah. And he doesn't take it. He thinks, I'll just take advantage of you because you're an old man. I'll take all of it. Look, I could do a lot with $80,000 a month for a year. Let me tell you. Yo, $80,000 US dollars. You know how much money that is? In TT, that's a, a lot, lot of money. money. What Essentially, what the last days of Ptolemy Gray has taught us the absolute most is, greed will get you killed. Yeah. Sometimes just enough is fine. Yeah. Like, that's what's nuts to me. Mm-hmm. When you think about the amount of money he's offering people, it is so much money that they actually wouldn't really want for anything. Yeah. And it's also worth noting, as an aside, that all of the people that we consider the protagonists of this series are people who do not care about money, even when they have it. Koi Dog steals the treasure the very first time. And gives it to a child to manage. Yeah. So he can go and get his Bible and wait to die. Goodness gracious. Wouldn't it be nice if that were, we had more conversations about what money actually means to us and whether or not we want to have a society in which greed is a driving force of everyday existence. Yeah. Me personally, no. I don't want to live in a world. I mean, I'm a teacher, so I'm already fucked, but... Uh, <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a freelance writer, so I'm in the same boat. <laughs> yeah, we're both fucked for different reasons, yeah. But it just seems to me that, like, this is a story that you could easily look at, how it, it looks at greed as, yes, a vice, perhaps, and there you could maybe even do, like, the seven deadly sins are probably somewhere in here. But it's a vice, but it is also a thing that, like, turns people into monsters, it turns them honestly stupid in some cases Mm -hmm. it makes people do things that are fundamentally illogical they're not intelligent behaviors they're behaviors that are corrupting and disruptive and ruin lives even when there are other options being given to you that are options where you can live comfortably and not really worry all of that much I mean, basically, Ptolemy is offering, like, his own version of universal basic income. <laughs> like, yeah. it's, it's Ptolemy's basic income at the end of this. To some degree, is that the society that we want? A society where greed's not the motivator, growth and discovery and becoming greater than ourselves and doing things beyond ourselves, and just living quality good lives. Is that not enough? I think it should be. It's just hard to get it. Yeah. It's just stupid. It pays to have stolen antebellum gold, I guess. I mean, to be fair, fuck those slave owners. (laughs) I mean, I don't feel guilty about stealing gold from rich white families from the South. Like, I am very glad that even though Koi Dog passed in the business of accomplishing that goal, the very last thing that he did was burn. (laughs) Oh, light them all on fire? Yeah, they got exactly what they deserved. I just think it's so fucking hilarious. I mean, it's an extrajudicial killing. That they run a black man down towards a tree with a tank full of kerosene. And he just kicks some kerosene on all five of them. And then... Hangs himself. Yeah. And just waits. Just watches them burn to death as he... Suffocates, yeah. And like, that's actually rad. I mean, he took it away from them, right? He takes away their ability to do the killing. Mm -hmm. Because he takes that out of their hands. He robs them of the very joy of punishing him. And he gets to punish them as well. 
Yeah. I mean, it's it's worth noting, it's an extrajudicial killing, so it's not like he was brought into a court of law and found guilty of theft. They just murder him. Mm-hmm. They lynch him. And it's like, yeah, okay, I, I don't care what happens to these white people. Let them burn in a cornfield. Yeah, pretty much. Well, okay, there's lots of other things. I have lots of questions that I could ask, but we don't have time. And so we got to make the podcast stop. <laughs> Unfortunately. Unfortunately. So I'm really glad we watched this, Brandon, so thank you. Mm-hmm. And folks at home, I would be really curious if folks have seen it. If you are curious about watching it yourself, I will just note that Apple TV Plus has a seven-day free trial. This is only six episodes, and it's about, like, 50 minutes a pop. So, you know, about five hours and ten minutes or something. You could watch this whole show in that seven-day period if you just watch one episode a day. You can watch this show in an evening if you have six hours to kill. I would love it if folks would try it. Give it a shot. It is very good. It is fantastic. And if you would like to, let us know at skiffyfanny.com slash listener suggestions what you think. Because there's just a lot here. And there's a lot we probably missed because it we're trying not to make a 10-hour podcast about a six-episode miniseries, uh, which we could do, but we have lives. So <laughs> with that in mind, uh, folks, you can find us at Skiffy Fanning on Twitter and Instagram. You can get the newsletter at skiffyfanny.com slash newsletter. And of course, if you like what we do, please do support us at patreon.com slash You get access to our Discord and all kinds of other goodies. And do give us some love by leaving five-star reviews on iTunes and other podcatching places. As for me, you can find me at Sean Duke on Twitter, seanduke.net, Alphabet Streams on Twitch, and patreon.com slash thejoyfactory. You can find me at The Rising Tithes on Twitter, patreon.com slash therisingtithes, streaming at twitch.tv slash therisingtithes, and on speculatorsf.com, where I currently GM Fractal Spire, a girl by Moonlight actual play. Excellent. Uh, so, Brandon, I just want you to know that uh, for the last six months, I have been secretly digging a hole underneath Force Knox. Mm-hmm. So I can steal a very large quantity of uh, antebellum gold. Okay, yeah, I'm for this. Uh, what's the first plan that you have in mind for the actual gold? Uh, we're buying a helicopter, which I will fly without a license. Eh, we could do better things with the gold. I mean, we could. But, I mean, it's more fun if we do it in a helicopter. Is it? Well, we're going to find out. I'll pick you up next week. Uh, uh, next week I might be busy. I might be busy. I'll let you know. <laughs> awesome. All right, folks. Uh, awkward ending and see. <laughs> If you want to support this show, you can go to patreon.com slash skiffyandfanty or skiffyandfanty.com, our website, where you can get access to all of our fancy things. Our music comes from Holy Mole. You can support him and his work at patreon.com slash holy mole. Thank you for listening. <laughs>